From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house ready to take your calls. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 2712985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson back handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, we're playing our weekly game of where in the world is Father Brian Mullady. And Father Brian, the answer to the question today this week is... Aiken, South Carolina, at St. Mary Help of Christians Parish. Ooh, I love that title of hers, Mary Help right. of Christians. Yes. So, speaking of Mary, um, you know, we are obliged to believe as Catholics, one of the Marian dogmas is that she was immaculately conceived without the stain of original sin in the womb of her mother, St. Anne. But her birth was not immaculate, was it? Or was it? Uh, um, I don't know what you mean by that. I, just, I was trying to find a clever way to get to Mary's birthday here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we celebrate tomorrow the feast of the birthday of Mary, so I thought we'd talk about it today. And uh, the reason we celebrate it tomorrow is because that's determined by the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So we have December 8th, Mary's Conception, Nine months later, September 8th, we have her birth. And the traditions of her birth are very uh, interesting. For one thing, there are a number of things that aren't in the Bible, but in early Gospels that we don't consider to be inspired, like the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, however, which the Christian tradition has accepted as normative. So, for example, in that original account, which dates from the second century after Christ, um, Joachim, of course, is considered to be Mary's father, and he's a wealthy member of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he, together with his wife Anna, are greatly grieved because they're childless, and this calls to their mind Abraham, remember, who was childless also, until God gave him Isaac in his old age. Joachim and Anna begin to devote themselves extensively and rigorously to prayer and fasting, and wondering whether the reason they can't conceive 
might be due to some displeasure from God. But in the passage itself of the proto on the Job of St. James, it's revealed that the couple were to be blessed even more abundantly than Abraham and Sarah, because an angel reveals to Anne when he appeared to her and prophesied that all generations will honor this future child. The angel says to her, the Lord has heard your prayer and you shall conceive and shall bring forth and your seed shall be spoken of in all the world. And when Jotham and Anne both hear this, uh, Jotham's out in the countryside and Anne's in the city. They run to greet each other and they embrace. And the embracing of Jotham and Anne is the only example in Christian art of a married couple embracing each other. When Mary and Joseph are shown, they're always shown facing the people or with Jesus between them. But Joachim and Anna, because their child was conceived immaculately but by human seed, they're shown as a married couple embracing each other. According to this early source, Anne made a sanctuary in the little girl's room and allowed nothing common or unclean to enter because she was already aware of her special holiness. And this same early Christian source records that when she was one year old, they had a huge feast. The priests, the scribes, and the elders, and all the people of Israel came. And they said many beautiful things about the blessing of this child. And the parents and the priests, the temple priests together, decided that she would be a consecrated virgin for the rest of her life in the temple, which is, of course, the origin of the feast of the presentation of Mary in the temple, and enter into a chaste marriage with the carpenter, Joseph. St. Augustine, one of the great doctors of grace, describes the birth of the Blessed Virgin as being history-changing and nature-changing. That in her, our frail human nature we inherited from Adam first began to take on a more supernatural significance and return to what it will eventually be in Christ. Of course, in Christ, we have the person of the word of God. Mary is a human person only. But return to what it was originally meant to be because remember, our tradition is that Mary suffered from nothing, nothing in sin, um, not actual sin and not original sin. For example, as you know, she doesn't inherit pain in childbearing, which is a punishment for sin and said that she brought forth her child in joy. And also that she experiences perhaps a kind of death, but it's more like a sleeping and so there's no corruption in her death and no suffering and no pain. Now, of course, there is pain in Our Lady's life, but all these pains are connected to her son's mission and to the crucifixion. And it's that which places her among the redeemed. So uh, she's the first member of our church. And after Jesus, um, and I know that birth of John the Baptist also is highly emphasized in our feasts. 
the feast of the Blessed Virgin and her birth is the most important because in her we finally see the beginning of salvation born into this world. Um, so this is such a special day. We must re-express our faith in Mary's immaculate conception, in her holiness, in her place as the mother of God, in the life of our Lord, and allow Christ to see in her an example to us of what it means to place Christ at the center of our lives. Toda Polkra S, you are all pure, O Virgin, and the stain of original sin and actual sin has never and will never touch you. You know, Mother Miriam of the Lamb of God, the former Rosalind Moss, likes to say that she is the quintessential Jewish mother. She walks around saying, have I got a son for you? Um, but, uh, you know, she uh, if, if you look at, at what Holy Mother Church t- teaches about the Blessed Virgin Mary and look at the accounts of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Sacred Scripture— it just boggles the mind that anybody could accuse Christianity in general and the Catholic Church in particular about being anti-woman. Well, that's absolutely true. And the Catholic Church is the only place for many centuries where women could exercise authority, especially abbesses and abbeys. And then, of course, in this country until recently when they had all these sisterhoods you know they were all presidents of colleges and heads of hospitals and all these things they exercised the great expertise and also um you know did what women are trying to do now as far as the professions are concerned the trouble is that once they went over to secularism they lost the ability to do that, and they took upon themselves, too, the feminist movement, and that just did an end to their vocation, and that's why so many of our wonderful institutions have closed. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833 833- 288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Wide open phone lines for you. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Brand new book from EWTN Publishing for the month of September. 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. This book will inflame your heart with love for Jesus' Eucharistic heart through the heart of his mother Mary. 
It will help you enter into meditation with Jesus and Mary as never before, and it will open your hearts to receive the graces available from the sacred mysteries. You'll find ways to rekindle the fire of divine love in your prayer life and grow in loving communion with our Lord in the Eucharist, and you'll be inspired by moving stories of saints, including St. Faustina, the Fatima children, and Pope St. John Paul II, and we'll learn how to apply them to your daily faith journey. It's an ideal resource for the Eucharistic revival. That's 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, a new book available from EWTN Publishing at EWTNRC.com by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Angelique is watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know, how do you know if you have a guardian angel, and what do they do for us? Well, we know because we believe in it. (laughs) Uh, Also, um, there are certain scripture texts he has given his angels guard over you, lest you strike your foot against the stone from the Old Testament. And the doctrine of the guardian angels is extremely consoling because what they do for us is they help us along our journey to heaven. And you consider that God considers each of us personally, individually, to be important enough to have our own angel. Uh, It's a stupendous uh, mystery. It's very helpful to children to know that they have a guardian angel. In fact, when we were little children in Catholic school, and the sisters told us about this, we used to sit, one if they needed room to sit next to us on a desk and things like that, because, you know, we had those old desks with the inkwells and the whole bit. And uh, it's kind of things that children do. But we became aware of a whole gosh spiritual creation which we weren't aware of before Uh, obviously there's no proof for angels from our senses because they're pure spirits but you can experience angelic warfare for you you can also experience the care of the angels for you but it's not again something that's evident in the sense that you could share just with someone else. It's a spiritual condition, and it has to do with the spirit, your spirit, your soul, that passes to uh, interest and union with these angelic creatures. So the world is basically chock full of angels who are friendly to us and help us. You know, uh, Everybody's so fascinated by the Satan and the presence of Satan. They forget that the good angels are here, too, to demonstrate for us God's individual care for each one of us. So how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? (laughs) Well, it's a stupid question because they don't have bodies. (laughs) (laughs) So um, there's no... And remember, every angel has its own nature. So they're not like human beings where we share a common nature. Every nature is its own, every angel is its own unique nature. Um, got an email from Scott. We visit this topic uh, every so often. He says, I'm an atheist. 
I am not convinced that God exists. How can God possibly exist? If he did, wouldn't he be all loving and not allow evil in the world? Well, yeah, this is the whole problem of evil, which is a difficult problem. And there are two kinds of evil. There's physical evil and there's moral evil. What most people have trouble with is physical evil. What they should have trouble with is moral evil. (laughs) And the difference between the two is that in a physical evil, you have a lack and a being that leads to a lack and a kind of action. So let's say my leg was curved, which would be a physical evil for a leg. That's not the way it was meant to be. That means I would be lame when I walk, which... uh, you know, portrays this lack within me. Moral evil is exactly the opposite. When we love something in a disordered way, that leads to us losing something in our souls that demands order, like grace, for example, and mortal sin. And you can't have a healthy soul without having a soul in the state of grace. So God doesn't directly will those things but he tolerates and permits them because first of all that's the way material creation is you know what's good for the lion is bad for the lamb in order for material creation to survive one has to in a sense live off the other Uh, even if it were just cows eating uh, plants you know uh, grass What's good for the cow has to be evil for the grass in the extent and sense. But in the case of moral evil, that's permitted by God. First of all, because from the original moral evil, which was the original sin, he brought forth the gift of the incarnation, a greater mercy. So he takes something which is evil and he brings forth an even greater good from it. And secondly, of course, we wouldn't have the good of conversion and that sort of thing had we not, God not tolerated the evil of the sin. So I know it's tempting to think that God should just forbid all sin, but that wouldn't give us a free will either. And human beings, he is the glory and honor of participating in because he does love them fully, but he doesn't want slaves. He wants servants and sons who choose to love him. If we can choose to love him, by implication, we can also choose not to love him or to love self. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Evie writes in, My husband has recently come back to the Catholic Church. How can I respond to him about things he's reading about the Pope and the goings-on in the Church that he is now really upset about? Well, the way to respond to that is to realize that we've always said the Church is a perfect society. But we didn't mean perfect in membership. We mean perfect in the sense that it has all the means willed by Christ to lead us to heaven if we choose to take advantage of them. Now, the reason the church exists is primarily for the laity and the clergy are the servants of the laity. If you have a clergyman who lives his vocation well, then that can be an extremely important and powerful help 
to encouraging the laity to live well. But if you have a clergyman, and there's been lots of them in history, who are in it for the wrong reasons, or who, you know, teach things that aren't true, remember the first great heretic, one of the first great heretics is Nestorius, and Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople. So he was second only to the Pope. Um, so uh, we, we have to remember we're made up of human beings. Now, that, does that justify this stuff? No. And especially moral evil doesn't justify. The pedophilia crisis is a terrible thing. How priests can participate in such things, uh, I don't really know, especially the ones that do with impunity. And it seems today almost openly, they have no qualms at all of conscience about it or anything. But uh, the solution isn't to, uh, in other words, you don't become a member of the church because of the people in it. You become a member of the church because of Christ and what he teaches. And if the doctrine of the church represents that. So you have to try to keep clear the difference between the person and what the person's teaching. Uh, just today, someone showed me an article where the former Archbishop of Dublin said that John Paul II was a horrible theologian because he actually believed in objective evil. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, it doesn't compute in my brain. People today are illogical and they just want to make people feel happy. And a lot of clergy, unfortunately, one of their primary values is people in the church. Well, there's nothing wrong with people in the church, but they want to people the church by justifying evil and saying it doesn't matter what you think, you can become a communicant or what you do. Well, that's not true. So the people who bear the greater responsibility for this are the people that should know better. But again, you need to make a distinction between the weakness of the uh, clergy and the doctrine of our church, which has always been taught. And our doctrine is very beautiful, it's very deep. It's the only doctrine that justifies the fact that faith and reason can agree with each other. And even though we've had lots of people that haven't been great Christians, we've also had a lot of people who have been. Casey wants to know, if there appears to be a contradiction in a matter between sacred scripture and tradition, how is that solved? You can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically solved by whatever the tradition has decided. Because um, most of the difficulties, supposedly, between the two, you know, we had actually had the Bible for quite some time, 2,000 years, and the same with sacred tradition, which supposedly began at Pentecost. So it isn't like nobody's ever thought of these things before. You know, every time you get one of these um, questions about, like, didn't Jesus have brothers and sisters says so in Scripture? Well, duh. I mean, people thought about that. You know, that question was answered about 5,000 times in the last 2,000 years. It's not like uh, people before were stupid and never read the Bible or never realized that there were some contradictions that weren't resolved just by that. So 
it's it's very difficult without an authority. That's one of the reasons why we have a magisterium to try to resolve, and that's to say the Pope and the bishops, to try to resolve seeming controversies between the two. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Michael called in, and he wasn't able to hold on, Father, but he wants to know. He says, Pope Francis has a basilica. What is that? And every other bishop seems to have only a cathedral. Can you explain what those two things are? Yeah. Oh, a cathedral is the church where the bishop resides, and the Pope, in fact, has a cathedral, which is the Lateran, the Church of St. John Lateran. Major churches that are often sites of pilgrimage or things like that are also called by, uh, designated by the church through church law to be basilicas, which just means that they're especially important churches, that's all but they may not be a place where a bishop resides. Thanks so much, Michael. We appreciate that uh, call today. Deborah's watching us on YouTube, and she says, Father, for non-Catholics like me who want to partake in the Eucharist but can't because we're not Catholic, is, there a, is the spiritual communion an option for us, and is it equivalent? Um, I would say, one, you, you can try to do it, but if you... If you don't believe in it, you know, why are you doing it? Uh, regarding the second, no, it's not equivalent at all. It's only for those who are not able to receive the Eucharist who are members of the church who are invited to have a spiritual communion because they believe in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ being in the uh, consecrated host. But if you don't believe in it, I don't quite understand. And if you do believe, why wouldn't you become Catholic, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. God bless you, Deborah. We appreciate the phone call. Yeah, 833 288. Go ahead, Father. I'm sorry. No, no, that's true. No, yeah. Yeah. 833 288 EWTN. That's our toll free number. 833 288 3986. How do we distinguish, Aaron wants to know, between prayer to the saints and pray and praying to God? How can we know which is worship and which is not? Well, very easily, because we're not praying to the saints. We're asking the saints to intercede for us with God and to help us to pray properly. But we pray, everybody prays to God, including the saints. We're not praying to them. We're asking their intercession and aid as our friends in helping us to approach the divine throne with them. So it's not to them, it's with them. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Jim asks, how can I explain to Protestants why Catholics believe that you can lose your salvation? Well, uh, because we, it's, it's, that's a rather complicated question because it involves a whole different understanding of what grace is. For Luther, grace wasn't a thing in our souls. It was God overlooking our evil. So we all remain depraved. But if we have psychological confidence in Jesus and admit that we're depraved, the, pro- the problem is, at least for him and for some others, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you have confidence that you're saved. Um, but it's a psychological experience, an emotional experience. For us, we look upon grace as some change in our souls that demands of us a certain kind of behavior or conduct. And as a result, it's possible for us to fall out of the state of grace and return to the state of grace through the use of confession to fall out of the state of grace through the commission of mortal sin. No matter what our confidence is in what we might be saved, Remember, uh, we always quote that line from the catechism where Joan of Arc was asked if she was in a state of grace. Now, the Catholic Church is you can't know with absolute certainty unless God reveals it to you that you're in the state of grace because it's a condition from God's point of view and only God knows his own mind. Um, If she said she wasn't in the state of grace, they would have burned her as a heretic as um, a witch. And if she said she was in the state of grace, they would have burned her as a heretic. So she answered what Catholics answer, which is, if I'm not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God keep me there. Now, you can have a relative certainty that you're in the state of grace if you obey the commandments, believe in our religion, and try to love God and aren't aware of having committed a mortal sin. But it's not absolute in the mathematical sense. And that's because we can, while we're on earth, always fall away. Once we die, our destiny is fixed, but not while we're on earth. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Cindy would like to know, what is the Catholic perspective on righteousness? How do we obtain it? Okay, well, the word righteous is a difficult word uh, in our language as far as the scriptural language is concerned. It basically refers, first of all, justification is related to it. It basically refers to the soul being completely in order in itself without um, weakness and with an orientation toward God and the beatific vision. Adam and Eve enjoyed this condition of original righteousness before they committed the sin. 
after they committed the sin because they've lost grace, their soul is in a state of disarray. Uh, it's often been compared to a rebellious city where there's no silence and there's no unity. We, we experience it somewhat today in the riots we have in this country, invading department stores and just stealing things. Um, it, it's completely uh, beyond the pale when it comes to any kind of real peace, civil peace or even economic peace. So righteousness has to do with our soul, first of all, receiving back grace. But then we do it with a soul that's still a rebellious city. That's what it means to say that we're just and a sinner at the same time, which is what St. Augustine said. When Luther interpreted that text, he said, well, we're actually a sinner, but considered righteous. No, that's not what we think. We think we're actually righteous and have a weakness towards sin. So, um, and it's a weakness that it's very difficult for us to lose. You know, you have to address your ego to lose your tendency towards sin. And I personally think that People just admitting they have an ego is a big point gain. <laughs> um, and it's, it's it's suffering. It involves a lot of suffering to admit you've got an ego um, and, and humility to do so. But then once you admit it, then you have, what are you going to do with it? Well, that's where the mystical life comes in, the ascetical and mystical life, where we seek to soften and lose our egos so that God can take a fuller place in motivating us in our heart. So that's what real righteousness is. Real righteousness is allowing God to replace your life with his. And it's not easy for those of us who are in the state, still in the condition, not the state. We have received back grace, but it's a healing grace and it takes a long time to heal this illness. Um, somewhat related question. Bryant wants to know, is there a category in Catholic theology called unintentional sin? Uh, well, yeah, there'd be a lot of unintentional sins where you actually commit the sin, but you didn't intend it because you didn't know. Uh, people who commit sins in the state of ignorance, their, their sin is unintentional, but it doesn't make it any less a sin. What it means is that it's not, um, you're not responsible for it. We have the same category in, in, uh, in civil law where you commit a crime. Let's say you drive drunk and you may kill someone, but you didn't intend to kill the person, even though you intended to be in the state of drunkenness. So even though you're, you're not guilty of first degree murder, you're still guilty of homicide in some way because you put yourself in a condition where you didn't know what would result from it and something evil could have resulted. So I believe it was Pius Twelfth who said that even though a person not might be responsible for sin, that doesn't make it a virtuous act or a good act. Uh, this is often applied to sexual sins because the storm of emotion connected to them is so great that sometimes people are easily victims to them. Well, because they resulted not so much from their intention, 
free will, although they did consent up to a point, but um, their consent was compromised by the storm of emotion that was present at the time. They, what is a mortal sin might be for them considered to be a venial sin, but it's not a righteous act and it's not a good and it should never be recommended. Uh, we have an email here from John, and he says, I am curious as to why the Catholic gospel is so complicated and hard to explain as compared to the very simple presentation of the apostles in the Bible and by other Christian denominations. Isn't this complexity a huge impediment to evangelism? Well, well the complexity is present in the book. <laughs> you know, the Bible is not an easy book to study or to read. And uh, I'm not sure that the gospel is quite so simple, even for Protestants. I remember my grandmother was a Methodist, and she read the King James Version of the Bible every day. She had an eighth grade education. And when I entered my order, uh, she took my room at home, and uh, there was a thing in there at the time in the 60s, it was called the New English Bible. And it wasn't a translation of the Bible. It was more a popularization. Well, I had a copy of that. And when I came back from the novitiate, my Methodist grandmother said, oh, I can't thank you enough for leaving that book here. I said, really? She says, yes. I read the Bible every day of my life and didn't have a blessed idea of what most of it was about. <laughs> <laughs> and this helped me to think more about what I think is really about. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but Christianity, remember, it's the revelation of the living God, the infinite God to the world. It's not going to, it's simple in some sense, but the problem with us is we don't have simple minds. Our, our minds are very complex and we approach simplicity through complexity. Um, Penny is in Chicago, Illinois. She's listening to us on WSFI Radio today. Penny, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello, Father. Hi. Um, my oldest sister is uh, in the last days of her life. And she's been given her last rites by a hospital chaplain in Tucson. And um, I'm wondering if that is uh, as good as a priest giving her her last rites, and also, what is the best way for me to pray for her? I said a rosary um, for her this morning. I don't know what else I can do. Well, I don't know what she means by last rites because only a priest can give last rites. Uh, the sacrament of the sick, and the reason is because it involves the forgiveness of sins. Um, now, people can pray for the person. But and I'm not even sure if the person was Catholic that did it. Maybe they gave them a blessing and the Eucharist. I don't know. But the actual sacrament of the sick, which we used to call last rites, we don't call it that anymore, even though it's used for that at times. Uh, that can only be given by a priest. Um, as for you, um, you know, you pray for her just like you pray for everyone else. And you pray that she'll have the uh, a good person to pray to is St. Joseph. Because, as you know, he's the patron of a happy death. 
And the reason is because he died in the arms of Jesus and Mary. So pray that she'll die in the arms of Jesus and Mary. And also, Penny, I'm sure if you were to contact the diocese there in Tucson, uh, they would be happy to send a priest uh, to your sister's location uh, and hopefully be able to uh, administer the elements of the last rites for her. And we will all keep you and your sister in our prayers as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Brian in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Brian, you're on with Father Brian. Great, thank you. Uh, my question is, is, when I'm talking to an atheist, he says, I do good acts and you do good acts. Why are my good acts any uh, less than yours? So he basically he's saying that I don't need God to be good because I can be a good person without God. So being good as a Christian doesn't really mean anything. How would you respond to that? Oh, my goodness. Well, this is the typical gospel of philanthropy where uh, as long as you're having good vibes toward other people and you do some good things for them, that that's considered to be the summit of religion. Uh, look, we're called, yes, to do good acts, but we're called to do good acts because we're aware within us of the presence of the Holy Trinity and we're acting through their inspiration and preparing ourselves for heaven. And there's a world of difference between the two, plus the fact that what do we do when all our acts aren't good? Some people don't do righteous acts all the time. Now, I do know that there are people who don't believe in religion, especially. I'm not sure they're exactly atheists, but they do do good to their neighbor, but they do that partially because they've been influenced to do that by a Christian culture. The importance of adding faith, hope, and charity to what you do and what you suffer uh, is immense, and it's very different. Be sure to join us for the Fathers of Mercy Hour. That's Sunday mornings at 4 a.m. Eastern Time. The Preaching Order, the Fathers of Mercy, provide these excellent parish mission and retreat talks featuring uh, very familiar faces to you like Father Wade Menezes, Father William Casey, and many more. Um, the Fathers of Mercy Hour, Sunday mornings, 4 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Marie writes in, this is... This is this is something. Marie writes in, Hello, Father. The Sunday bulletin of our local parish this week, while encouraging us to pray for loved ones in purgatory, noted that, quote, they may be in hell where they need our prayers for mercy. Is that possible, she says? Uh, no, not if they actually are in hell, no. Your prayers for mercy aren't going to make any difference there. Uh, the person's destiny is fixed when they die. And whoever wrote that apparently didn't understand that. They apparently thought you could come out of hell and go to heaven. That's never been Christian doctrine. It's never been Catholic doctrine. And uh, uh, considering that your will is fixed in your egotism, it, it's simply impossible. And uh, Linda writes in, 
I sadly lost my mother literally a couple of weeks ago. My father passed away four and a half years ago. I'm having a hard time dealing with the emotional aspect of wrapping my head around not having any parents anymore. Can you recommend a book on grief that may help me deal with this from a Catholic perspective? Thanks for your help. Uh, no, I can't recommend a book to you. However, I don't quite understand what you mean by you're not having parents anymore. Your parents are always your parents, even after they die when they're in heaven. And you can you have parents now that know the mystery and are even more helpful to you. You know, the founder of my order, St. Dominic, when he was dying, all the brothers gathered around his deathbed and they were all weeping. And so St. Dominic said, don't weep for me. I'll be much more used to you in heaven than I ever was on earth. <laughs> so. Well, you know, it's interesting because if you track the trajectory of the growth of EWTN, uh, you know, it, it, it was fairly steady. Uh, when Mother Angelica was was actively doing television programming and what have you, when she had her second stroke and went into her cell, it, there was a marked upturn in the growth of yeah. EWTN. And then when she went on to her eternal reward, there was an even greater market upturn. And I think that that's, that gives evidence to what you're saying here. Absolutely. Yeah. Say, don't underestimate your parents interceding with for you from heaven. And if you occasionally, when something happens to you, like you're doing something you shouldn't be doing according to your parents or whatever, uh, you'll get your hand slapped big time. <laughs> and you say, uh, okay, I got the message. <laughs> uh, Kevin writes in, I became a Catholic recently, and a lot of people are telling me that Catholics worship Mary, and they think they earn their salvation by works. This took me by surprise. How should I respond? Well, tell them it's a result of ignorance. Uh, this has been, these are accusations that have been against Catholicism ever since the Protestant religion was founded. Interestingly enough, I found a quotation recently from Martin Luther, who said that Mary was the purest creature that had ever existed on earth, and we should always uh, venerate Mary greatly. Um, I don't know when it was written. I have a feeling it was written after he came, became a Protestant, but because um, he had, a, as you know, a rather contradictory way of doing theology, but apparently he had a great devotion to Our Lady, which he never lost. Yeah, I think that's pretty we well documented. Yeah, we don't um, worship Mary. We, together with her, worship God. And we ask her as the primary worshiper to help our worship to be better, to accompany us. As to, what was the other thing again? It's always, uh, oh, works, salvation by works. Well, the epistle to James, which, of course, the Protestants reject, says that you show me your, you know, faith without works. You, you know, he connects one of the apostles' faith and works together. Now, what works was he talking about? Well, first of all, he's talking about the works of the sacraments. Those are Christ's works. And secondly, he was talking about the idea that, now, we don't merit salvation by our works, and that we agree with the Protestants. 
But once we receive grace, then grace has to have an influence over the way we live our own life. And so uh, in what's called cooperating grace, uh, God cooperates with us once we receive grace, which is called operating grace, in uh, motivating our free choices so that actually there are two that work, the Holy Spirit and us. But see, because since our part of the work is still ours, it's very infinitesimal compared to the Holy Spirit, but it's still ours, then that's why we each receive a reward in heaven and our rewards are different. In my house, there are many mansions. So the mansions are determined by how much you loved God, which you show in your works. But no one is going to be disappointed if they are fortunate enough to behold the beatific vision, huh? Oh, of course not. I mean, everybody's happy that other people have gone there. And it's it's not it's not a meritocracy in the sense that you get paid more. It has it's all a union of love, you know. So everybody's happy that they all love God, each in their own way. Little Flower reflected that, you know, in her famous thing about the little flower, where she said she was very perturbed because she wasn't a big flower like Teresa Bavala. She was a little flower, but then she said God opened her mind. And she realized that the bouquet also needs the small flowers that accent the big ones. And what mattered for the beauty of the bouquet was just that all the flowers were in the bouquet, not whether you were a rose or just a little lowly violet or whatever. Well, we've come to the end of another edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? The blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you. And remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're going to do it again tomorrow, back live and interactive with you on EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, have a great night and God bless.